Great. We're going to dig into God's Word now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your Word. And we pray for your Word in season to us right now. Bless Alad as he speaks to us. Give him the right words. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Morning. How are you? Very good. Four grand in the offering. That's pretty good. Plus whatever happens today, plus gift aid. So that's all pretty good, isn't it? That's a good, that's a good sign, and that's uh, very encouraging. So I thought last Sunday was great. Um, I think here in the testimony, just to reiterate what, what Neil said, just here in testimonies like that of what God's done in people's lives, fantastic. And then getting insights that you never knew anything about, like Pam. Just full stop. Just, just Pam. Pam's life, the stories that she nearly told it but didn't, the thing about the prostitute, I'm like, what? And then she didn't say anymore, and you're going, okay, we'll move right on. <laughs> so, so good on you. It was great. It felt like a family morning, and it felt like that's the way that we'd like it to be, isn't it? Where God is moving, not just in uh, kind of paid employees, uh, because that's a bit limited, but God works in all of our lives, and the testimony of God's grace week in, week out, what we've had is fantastic maturity uh, this morning has been wonderful. So today we are going to take a good look, or they're starting to take a good look at Colossians. Um, or as uh, Poirot says on the Bible app, Colossians. <laughs> I nearly fainted when he said it, when I was listening. It's like, no one's ever called it that in my hearing ever in my entire life. So, but that's what we're going to do. Um, so if, if you've got kind of time in the week, get into it, drink it in, get familiar with it and start to read it. We're going to be doing it until the end of March. So it's like you'd be Colossianed out or Colossianed out by the end of it. And it's kind of like, what are we going to do? But you kind of, there's things in there, I think, that are massively relevant. But my task is to kick us off. Then you'll be hearing from Ben and Rachel. You'll hear from Ellie. You'll hear from Neil. You'll hear from Mark. Uh, quite a few of us all chipping in as, as we go through this series. There's only four chapters. You're thinking, how are you going to stretch that out until the end of March? <laughs> we have means, <laughs> all kinds of means. So, um, It's a great Pauline epistle. Paul, as you know, probably, or maybe you don't know, but he wrote 13 books of the 27 in the New Testament. That's like a lot. And uh, he didn't write it for the sake of it. He didn't get up one morning and thought, you know what? I think I'll write Colossians. It was prompted by things that were going on. So it was real life answers to real life problems that churches were actually facing. If he'd had Zoom, I think he would have been like in his element. And he may not have written so much. If he'd had a plane, he, he, you know, that would have made a difference. He probably got to Spain. But, you know, all kinds of stuff would have happened for Paul if he had the technology that we have. We do have that technology, and we can get from A to B a lot quicker. But well, Paul is in prison, and no matter what your technology, you can't do much if you're in prison. So the best way still is to write, and he's writing something here for the sake of a new church. So he doesn't know, he's never been there, as we'll discover in a moment. He's never actually been to the place, but he does take responsibility for it. He usually wrote to churches when they were in some type of doctrinal trouble, which was common in the day because they just got started and were trying to work out what it was 
that this whole thing was meant to be about. We've had 2,000 years worth of it, and we still botch it up. But they were doing it for the very first time and were trying to work out what is this stuff? What is this following Jesus thing? What does it look like when, and you do it together? And of course, that is the whole essence of our enterprise today, is how do you work this out together? Rodney's word, I think, is really powerful, as was Suzanne Nestor's. If you ears to hear, and Dave encourages us with that bit out of John, it's like, that's good. That's good stuff, because it's, it's in the end, it's nothing too esoteric or elaborate or ethereal. It's actually to do with our hearts. And those blockages, we need to pay attention to them. Well, Sue, believing lies, shame, and unforgiveness. I knew I'd forget one that I didn't want to hear. <laughs> so, listen, the thing about the Bible is that it's not... Oh, yeah, the, other, the second book. Doctrinal stuff Paul writes about and behavioral stuff. That's where I was going with that one. I mean, if you've read Corinthians, it makes you... Have you read it? Yes. It makes you anti-blush. It's kind of like, whoa. It's a bit real and troubling. You think, we've never had to deal with anything like that quite, I think. <laughs> so, I'll talk to Mark later, see where, where he is. Uh, the thing about the Bible is it's not meant to be shrouded in dust by the side of your bed with yesterday's teacup ring right bang in the middle. You've got to wipe the thing off before you even open it. Does anyone else? Mm, there's a few of you who know what I'm talking about there. It's meant to be read by the people of God because it's, we need all the help we can get. And there is the very word of God that the Colossians didn't have. They didn't have the thing. They didn't have Colossians. They had nothing. They had what they'd heard through personal testimony like we'd heard. But we have, and we somehow take it for granted. And I think it's a mistake. We've had it for close on 2,000 years. But imagine being a new church plant in a valley in Turkey who's heard something from one guy, probably Philemon, who got saved when he went to Ephesus. Ephesus is about, what is it, 160K away from where Colossae is. And Colossae is like, it's the smallest place that Paul ever writes a letter to. It's really little. But it's interesting because Paul is preaching in Ephesus. Philemon go, is from there. He goes and gets saved there, comes back, releases his servants, Onesimus, and comes back, and Paul hears about that there's some difficulty, there's a new church, and he says to Epaphras, his teammate, go and sort it out. Go and, go and preach the truth into Colossae, and let's see what happens. So as we read this letter, we're talking about something which is current. It's real, although it's distant. <laughs> I don't think we've stopped needing to look after churches that are beyond the reach of a particular city. You think, well, that doesn't influence my life very much. Well, it does influence mine. And it does influence ours as a family of churches. It is actually what it's about, that you do not do it alone. There's all kinds to learn, and we'll have a little look at that as we go. Um, the strategic thing I want to say today is, is based on a couple of things. 
number one. Just turn, if you will, to uh, Colossians chapter one. I'm going to just have a little look here at the first 14 verses, and then Ben next week gets to do to speak on uh, the best, one of the best bits in the whole New Testament. Uh, um, Paul, an apostle, verse one of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard and the true message of the gospel that's come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit. Oh, hello. It's bearing fruit and growing. It's almost like it's got good soil. Throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, teammate really, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Oh, so Paul's sent this bloke, and this bloke's willing to go. Paul's in Ephesus, and he said, you go. I wonder how he asked him. Would you mind going? I think he might have just said, like, because if I said to you, Steve Price, go to Liverpool. Live at Goodison. <laughs> just like, go to Liverpool. It's like, um, I don't think so. It can't be like that, can it? Because it, we're into some kind of different use of authority. But the relationship here, plus the calling, plus the mission, means that Paul, who's discipled Epaphras, called him into his team, is able to say, guys, let's send Epaphras to Colossae. Paul sees it. He's in prison, but he, so he can't go himself, but he sends Epaphras and Paul has never been to this place, but unlike Rome where he'd never been and he wrote them a letter, it's quite good, I don't know if you've read it. It's like, he writes them a letter, but he's never been there, and you can tell by the way he addresses them. Here, he feel, it feels like a, a Paul church, principally because the extension of that apostolic ministry was brought through Epaphras. So when you're part of something bigger than yourselves, you don't just relate uh, to a pope, you relate to a team. You see where I'm going here? That's the deal. And that's the downside of being in a church that's entirely independent with one leader. All due respect to all those churches that are meeting right now with just one leader. I've always seen it as a real weakness because of the lack of plurality in leadership and also in ministry. That's why you have the fivefold ministry, not just one ministry. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, and you have a plurality of leaders into whatever you call them. We've got, we've got a leadership team here, and we've, got, we've had elders or overseers and the pastor, whatever it is. So guys, Paul is able to impart something and send people and they're willing to go because they're volunteering to say, I'm in to do what God's doing. And so from my point of view, 
Paul's not been there, but he owns it. Because look at chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not met me personally. So Paul's in prison praying for this church. He's contending for these people he's never met. Now, the, the real asset says, somebody said to me once, about 25 years ago, you said to me, the extent of your ministry will be determined by the extent of your prayer life. At that time, it was a problem. At this time, it's not much better. But you know what? I do know, and we talk about this often in teams context over the last 25, 30 years or so, is that if you carry a church or a people in your heart, it's pretty difficult to get them out once they're in. And you then remember them and you pray because you love them. If you're an independent, isolated church with just a single leader going on, what, all you've got is your denomination, probably, which is functional as well as quite good in other ways. Like they're good with insurance and things like that, and HR and safeguarding and a number of other things. But I want to be in a family, and I want to be in an apostolic one that means that we can draw the best from around this movement that we're in to help us grow and do what we need to do and also that people from here if they've got talent and gifting from the Lord that they too can add in to other places we've been so we'd be I think we've been too much focused on here this church has an apostolic history if only you think we could recover some of that apostolicity try saying that at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night Apostol can we recover that so that we become what we're supposed to be? If only, you know, you imagine, if only we could have, we could plant in somewhere like Pershore or may, maybe plant in Colwall or, or maybe Ludlow or so Oh, hang on. Oh, we did do that. That's part of this church's history. What would it take for God to do that again? You say, well, they've got churches now. Well, maybe. But what would it take for God to, again, put that urge within us to say, yeah, you know what? It's not just about this particular gathering, our particular church. Perhaps we've got a call into the region because Ephesus, the, what went on in Ephesus began to fill the Lycus Valley. And I think that's the point of planting churches that plant churches, of being a church planting church. In order to do that, you've just got to have a bigger vision. We have got to have a bigger vision. One has to have one that says we're here for the region, not just our backyard. Does that make sense? I was praying about this, and this is what came up. This is what I started to read into what, I was, uh, what was in front of me. And you think, well, you probably, you, I know you weren't well, Alad, you're probably taking drugs, so maybe it's, it's probably it's gone to your head. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, you know, things didn't look too promising for that 300 in Gideon's army. You say, well, Gideon could just say, well, God, without you, we're going to lose. And that's the point. 
It doesn't matter whether you're 3,000 or whether you're 300 or whether you're 30. Without God, you're going to lose anyway. Because it was never about your strategy or about your skill. It was about the grace and the will of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't really matter what the numbers are and who's here and who's not here. The issue is, what's the call of God on this church and who are we? And where are we going to go next? You say, well, we're all a bit, you know, we're not quite as young as we used to be. Or my knee's a bit dodgy. Or whatever it might be that rules you out or rules us out from even thinking about it. But what we can do is join Paul and contend for those places that we've not yet met. I wonder whether that's what God's going to have us focus on. I wonder. I wonder if that's going to just come up through the soil. <laughs> because that's, it recovered, said Dave. He had to put the right stuff into it. And then he, God started to make it all things new. Amen. So, why write the letter? The letter's really an answer to a problem. But what's the problem? Just turn to chapter 2 here for a moment. And we'll get into, people are going to speak on this as we go. But I'm just giving a, a quick heads up on a couple of things. Just to give you an idea. Um, there is a problem in Colossae, as there was in Ephesus which is known as the Colossian heresy. And people call it the Colossian heresy without knowing what the heresy was particularly. It's all a bit tricky. But look, listen to this. In term, you, you know, of course, you, we only get one side of the letter, don't we? We get Paul's response to something that's prompted the letter, but we didn't get the original, hey, Paul, this is going on. Was it Epaphras who told him? I don't know. Maybe it was. Visited him one day, said, they've got trouble down there now because of this. Anyway, Paul writes this letter. And look at chapter 2, verse 6. And let, I'll read this to you and let this soak over you. And you tell me what the heresy was. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also now raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over, by the, over them by the cross. Breathe. All that is in response to verse 8. So 9 through till 15 is in response to what, he, what we see in verse 8. Well, we don't know, do we, 
It's not really clear, except in his responses you get a clue. What is this hollow and deceptive philosophy? What is it that, that the nature of it depends on human tradition? And elemental spiritual forces. What the heck is the problem? It's a philosophy that's hollow and shallow, but it, it, the, you can say, well, look, it, it, it looks like they're demeaning who Christ is. If you look at the answers here from verse 9 to 15, he's bringing it strong and hard to say Jesus, the unique Jesus I've just been talking about in chapter 1, verse 16, although he never said that like that. He, he's saying that same Jesus has defeated every principality and power, every elemental spiritual force, every hollow and deceptive philosophy bows at the name of Jesus. And all of that stuff you have been baptized out of. You've put it off. You've thrown it away. And don't forget, you're baptized into Christ. You've been raised with him. And he's made a public display of those principalities and powers that enforce and reinforce hollow and deceptive philosophies. So don't give your birthright away. Don't forget who you are. Look at verse 16. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you about what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died to those elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations have indeed an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, false humility, harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Whoa. Hollow and deceptive philosophy, plus a little bit of Jewish legalism and uh, strange mystery religion stuff going on from 16 down. So this stuff is complex and it's broad and it's varied. It affects your mind about what you think, but it also affects what you eat and what you drink. It affects what you do. It affects what you celebrate. It actually draws you into worship angels. And there's people who want to disqualify the Christian church in Colossae from actually worshiping Jesus as the one and only God. All of this junk, which sounds so wonderful, it's like a rigorous asceticism. All of it is there to try to persuade us to move away from what is central. And what is central is that you are worshiping the one and true God in Jesus Christ. Colossians, keep your eye on the ball. 
Don't forget who you are. Keep on track and do not let some type of philosophy, some type of idea, some type of current cultural relevant tolerance or argument draw you away from what is true. Every single day, our young people, I live with four of them, young people under the age of 24. I, I'm, only, I'm only 44. No, I'm not really. But I've aged considerably since they grew older. You think it's harder when they're little. It, it's not, is it? Okay, everyone say, hmm, there's... There's people who are 25 and bald and they've had six kids and they know it's terror, it's dangerous. But what's good about it is that you, I am face to face day in, day out with a TikTok cultural theology. I see it every single day. And it's like, there's, there's no amount of time in the day to counter or come against these deceptive and hollow videos and philosophies. I'm not against technology, I'm all for it, except VAR. So I am all in favor of all this because, it, well, why not? So we don't want to be Luddites and just smash iPhones. Don't touch my phone. What we want, though, is we, we, we want to be able to bring young people and though, into a discipling relationship with Jesus where the scriptures play a part in their actual faith and behavior, where the link between belief and behavior is made, rather than believing one thing and doing something entirely different. We're all familiar with hypocrisy. It's not like we've never been there ourselves. But this is a deep-rooted, day-in, day-out, continual barrage of other philosophy that is taking them away. And we stand there and go, we just don't understand the young people of today. I'll tell you what you do understand. You understand who Jesus is. And because we understand who Jesus is and because of the complexities of the world that we live in, if we don't stay true at this point to who he is, we'll lose it all. Potentially. Although I think God would never be without a witness. But if we don't do what we're supposed to, which is disciple and train and speak and describe the truth then TikTok will do it for you. I'm thinking about your grandkids. I'm thinking about your kids. I'm thinking about the ones you're raising. Tom and Becky, little kids. Like, man, they're, they're growing up into this world. How on earth do you bring Jesus into the middle of it? This is Paul's issue from a prison cell where he feels, I can't reach to them except through a letter. But he knows that his servant, who he has discipled, fellow servant, I should say, Epaphras, team colleague, is my, my view, he's discipled him so well that he can say, like he said of Timothy, I'm going to send you Epaphras. I'm going to send you Timothy, and he'll remind you of all my ways in Christ. I just, I thought about this a little, a little while ago. I thought, could I send our Dan? who is now 24, but at the time when I started thinking about this, he was like 70, I'm thinking, could I say that? City Church, I can't come, I'm ill, I'm going to send our Dan, who's 70, and he will remind you of, and now he got stuck right there. 
He can talk about all kinds of stuff. He understands the offside law better than anyone I know. How to do fantasy football league better than anyone else I know. But I, he'd be a bit stuck on Pauline doctrine. But I'd send him now, but only for a very short time. <laughs> Maybe an hour. But some of the fruit, some of the endless confrontations, some of the endless arguments, some of the endless pushing towards Jesus is now beginning to bear fruit. And he's getting married in July and he's going. I'm thinking, why can't I have the benefit of a Christian Dan? But his wife's going to get the benefit. And I get the, the joy of saying, see you later. <laughs> All the best, Jemima. <laughs> I love him to bits. He's very good. Okay, so look, all, that's what's going on with the whole letter. There's details, and we'll get into more of it as we go through. One last bit. Just go back, if you can, in your Bibles to the first section, verses 3 to, what is it, 14. Um, it's in two sections. You can tell that because they've helpfully in the NIV uh, given us a para different paragraphs. But that's their choice. Of course, as you know, that it was, there was no paragraphs or punctuation, more or less, in the original manuscripts. It was all just one sentence. Trying to work that out was pretty difficult, I imagine. But two things I want you to, to note here. And the first section here, verses 3 to 8, we've got two things going on. One is that there is this faith and love that spring from hope. Faith, hope, and love. Heard that before? Pauline themes. So Paul will say here, I've heard of your faith in Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Not bad for a church plant. Not bad for a church plant. I heard about your faith. Okay, we could go with that and go, well, it took a bit of faith to plant in Persius, Neil and Joe Sprague. Well done. We heard of your faith. Oh, it was well done, Ali. You planted in Nottingham or well done, Martin Esther. You planted in Derby or whatever it was. Well done, you got faith because you did it. But what's brilliant here is that the testimony isn't just that they had faith that had reached Paul's ears, but the love they had for all God's people. From the beginning, in a church plant, they were birthed with apostolic global love for the church. It's the exact opposite to a church that is caught up in its own orbit. Yeah, we give a little bit to the unity stuff. We give a little bit here. We give a little bit there. And sometimes we go along to the ecumenical thing on a Sunday with the Archbishop of Canterbury or whatever it might be. He comes to visit every... Do you know that? He's coming to visit for a... Yeah. He texted me. He just said, look on. He didn't. So it's like there's a type of unity that's very shallow. There's a type of unity that, that is kind of, it's kind of, you know you ought to do it, so you do it. But then there's the love for all God's people that gets you on your knees and starting to pray because the church in this city isn't really flourishing in the way that God wants it to. You say, oh, well, there's a great church around the corner. There's good churches here. And we were, we, well, we are a good church. But 
Tens of thousands of people in this city are going nowhere near any of them. So something's still not quite right enough. So perhaps we need to refocus our attention so that we begin to join with Paul and pray and contend for all God's people so that the love of God begins to be manifest in this city, even if it doesn't come through us. So the love for all the saints is a real marker of the Holy Spirit at work. And as they operate in faith and as they operate in love, things happen. That's what's happening here. Second bit, second half of this, verses 9 to 14. Paul says here that, well, he basically prays. And this sounds, if you've read Ephesians, like this sounds like Ephesians, which is no surprise because he's written both at the same time, probably from the same prison cell. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. You go, yeah. So you're going to find out the knowledge of God's will through his Spirit. And you're going to feel the love for all the saints that puts you on your knees. And when you're on your knees and you're feeling God's Spirit around you, he's going to give you revelation. And then also what he's going to give you on your knees is deeper levels of love and then words to pray. If you're doubting what to pray this week for the church in Worcester, go to verses 9 to 14 and just pray the scripture. Just pray. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, church in Worcester, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives so that the church in Worcester may live a life worthy of the Lord. Please him in every way, bearing, good, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He says, hello, welcome to church. <laughs> it's a language you don't normally use, but in that prayer is the entire counter-philosophy. It's the entire good news of what Paul is now going to say to the Colossians, hold fast to that. Hold fast to that faith that I've heard about. Hold fast to that love that you're demonstrating. Hold fast to what you know to be true and stay anchored when all around you is trying to seduce you away. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Through every age and every generation since the birth of the church there's always been a struggle to win the hearts and minds of people every generation has had to face their own challenges different centuries have produced different challenges for the church power and glory was one challenge in the middle ages you can be in power uh, other times, it's persecution and death. At other times, it's different philosophies and different arguments. Um, we're no different to any other generation that's ever been. And every other generation probably felt the same that we could feel, which is 
cowed by the, the size of this shadowy angel that says, ah, oh, no, you, you, you don't want to think that quite. You just want to move just a couple of degrees. And let me tell you about what you should be doing on a new moon festival or a new year festival. Keep the Sabbath properly. Don't eat that. Don't drink that. Don't do that. Behave like this, and I, it will bring the kingdom of God quicker. Be careful of these little philosophies that are man-made traditions that rob us of the life of the Spirit. Those are blockages to our legalism. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes for a moment. Let's ask God to speak to us. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are incomparable. You are the cosmic Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. All rule and authority rest in you. And you have power over every principality. You've made a public display of all of them on the cross. And right here, right now, we choose to say, we're going to remain faithful. Trust you. Hold fast to the gospel, which is bearing fruit all over the world. We thank you, Lord God, that we are part of the greatest movement that has ever been in the whole history of mankind. We thank you that we know what it means to be joined to the head. And also, Lord, we are, we, we, we are good testimonies of what it means to be joined to each other. Pray you enhance both our revelation of who you are and the revelation of the body in this church and across this city. I pray blessing upon City Church. I pray blessing in every shape, every form, every relationship. I pray blessing on the finances. I pray blessing on the leaders. I pray blessing on our hearts and minds. I pray blessing on those who have suffered from shame and contempt. Pray for those who have believed lies. We want to dis disavow them, as it were, though. Decouple them from those lies, Lord. Would you, you do it? Only you can in the end, Spirit of truth. And I want to pray, Father, that you would release us from any legalism as though our own asceticism could somehow bring closer the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray with all my heart for this church, would you release faith <laughs> to believe that what you've called us to be, Lord, is what we're going to be again. And Lord, love. I pray whatever else they say about City Church in this city, they'll say, they love us. <laughs> this is a church that prays for the city and prays for its well-being. Lord, here as we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Neil. Thank you, Alid.